Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Mark Schatzker is an award-winning journalist and a writer-in-residence at the Modern Diet and Physiology Research Center at Yale University. He's the best-selling author of The Dorito Effect, The Surprising New Truth About Food and Flavor. And today, we're here to talk about his latest bestseller, which is a personal favorite of mine, and it's titled The End of Craving, Recovering the Lost Wisdom of Eating Well. Mark, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I loved, loved, loved your book, probably one of my favorites of 2021. And you start the book by some nutri- with some nutrition inside baseball. You, you share an interesting history on high carb versus high fat. You talk about Gary Taubes and Kevin Hall and a little bit of a debate there. So, so can you elaborate on the two different philosophies and have we learned anything on, in terms of high fat and high carb? Well, I guess we're at a historical moment right now, which is to say we've had roughly two decades of beating up on two macronutrients. So I was born in 1973 and I still remember the kind of the, the war against fats. Some people say this was all the government's doing. I don't think that's true. It was more of a cultural moment where we decided that fat was the problem. You know, what makes you fat? It, it made a lot of sense. And as we all know now in the eighties, we all bought in way too much to carbs. What we don't know so well is that we actually didn't even limit our fat consumption all that much. It just sort of held even, but the war against fat was a, you know, a failure. We gained a lot of weight. The, the rate of obesity ticked up significantly. And then we had this sort of reckoning in the mid to late nineties, where we decided that's not working. Carbs are the problem. We, you know, I remember when it suddenly became trendy to go to like a dinner party and have, you know, have two helpings of flank steak, but avoid the garlic bread, avoid the pasta salad, you know, eat everyone else's steak kind of thing. And, and it became really trendy and it sort of then gained legitimacy with an essay that Gary Tobes wrote for the New York times magazine called what if it's all been a big fat lie. And let's start to get into the science of what has now become known as the carbohydrate insulin model. And the thesis is basically that um, consuming a diet high in carbohydrates, particularly refined carbohydrates, sort of causes a metabolic defect where we, you know, we secrete too much insulin. This causes blood sugar levels to, to plummet. It causes fat to be taken up by the cells and not used as energy. Um, and then an internal state of starvation follows. This triggers another bout of hunger. We consume more high processed carbs. And it's just sort of this repetitive, you know, endless, terrible state of eating where a metabolic defect of consuming the wrong macronutrient is what's causing weight gain. And it, it really sounded appealing. Like everything went wrong in the eighties because we started to eat, you know, too much rice, too much bread, not enough butter, not enough bacon. So it's been now, just like with fat, it's been about two decades and the numbers look terrible. Obesity is now at 42%. We did make a dent in certain things. Like we do eat less sugar than we used to, you know, per capita. Our bread consumption went down. But the thing that has sort of animated us all this time is it doesn't seem to matter what we stop eating. We find something else to eat. And there's just been this, this invisible force you know, making us eat. And, and it's not just as a population, we even see it in studies, you know, when scientists try earnestly to, let's say, get middle-aged women to eat more fiber, more fruit, more vegetables, it doesn't work. It, it doesn't matter how much money they spend or how much counseling there is and how telephone outreach and counselors, you know, coaching people, 
the appetite just seems to have a mind of its own. So, so I wanted to start the book by saying the dying wars are over. We've been beating up on nutrients for too long. This isn't where the problem is. And we need to start thinking about it in a radically different way. We do need to start thinking about it in a radically different way. And you mentioned the 42% obesity rate in America. You also talk a lot about Italy, which is at eight, 42 to eight. Yeah. Like, I, I, I mean, stunningly incomprehensible. What is going on? And, and more so 70% of women are either overweight or obese. I believe that was that in Mississippi, but in Northern, I don't know if that was Mississippi or the U S but in Northern Italy, it's the inverse where 70% of women are thin. It's hard to wrap your head around. There's even some evidence that in the past decade or two, Italian women have collectively lost weight. This is so interesting because we tend to think of this as a disease of affluence that, you know, we sort of emerge from the womb with this stone age appetite. And it's just the curse of wealth that we have too many calories around us and we gobble them up. So then you look at Italy and it's not just the low rate of obesity. That's actually the second most interesting thing about Italy. The most interesting thing is the quality of the food. Northern Italy in particular, they don't eat a Mediterranean diet in Northern Italy. They, this is a land, I visited this city, Bologna. This is where bologna literally comes from. There they call it mortadella and it's even fattier than our bologna. You can see these cubes of white fat. They celebrate, they revere the two macronutrients we've been you know, beating up on, carbs and fat. They have a repository in the Chamber of Commerce of official recipes to make you know, these cultural historic dishes that they value so much, things like tortellini. Their favorite noodle is called a tagliatella, and they keep one cast in gold. It is the platonic perfect noodle. These people seem absolutely food obsessed. And if it really were true that if, if it tastes good, you should spit it out, you would expect Northern Italians to be the absolute plumpest people in the world. And 8%, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. They, they eat an incredibly delicious diet and are thin. So they're eating lots of pasta. They're eating bologna, which is heavily processed here, uh, assuming that their bologna is, uh, better their bologna, quality. they have rules that go back 300 years as to exactly how it should be made. And it's processed in the sense that, you know, the meat is being ground and you're adding spices, but there's not nearly as many weird things. But so, so what are they doing? So right. If they're having pasta, they're having bologna and it, it, I look at pasta and bologna here and, and many would agree, you know, you talk about the diet wars, no matter which side you're on, I think many would agree that pasta and bologna is not the recipe for diet, diet and success here in America. So is it the quality of the food, the ingredients is what you're getting at or? I think that's definitely a part of it. It's really interesting. You know, I actually, when I visited it, Bologna, I brought some bologna with me and went to someone who makes mortadella and they had some and they were sort of lap, like they just couldn't believe how sort of similar it was, but how terrible it was. So quality is part of it, but it's not a food snobbery thing. They're, they're not food snobs. And, and you have this idea of Northern Italians, you know, driving Ferraris and, and they're dressed up in Gucci and stuff. And that's not, I mean, it's probably true for some of them, but that's not really the overall vibe. They are very passionate about food. I actually traced the differences in the book back a, a long way. You know, there was a time when Northern Italy really wasn't so different from us. If you turn back the dial about a hundred years, a little more, there was an epidemic um, in Northern Italy called pellagra. It literally means rough skin. And it would start with these, these skin scales. It would usually start with a farmer. He'd have a scale in his hand. 
might go away, come back the next year, and then it would start to spread. We get horrible diarrhea, loss of appetite, become delirious, and then die. Well, pellagra also made its way to the United States, and it's, it appeared in Georgia. This mysterious epidemic, I mean, we all know what an epidemic is, right? Well, this was more like obesity than like COVID in the sense that they had no idea what was the cause. There was this, uh, all the experts, of course, knew exactly what the cause was, but they all disagreed with each other and they got into these public spats about who was right and who was wrong. And we eventually learned that the cause was a deficiency of, of nutrition. This helped us form our understanding of micronutrients, vitamins. And, and so pellagra is caused by a deficiency of niacin or vitamin B3. But what's so interesting is how our two cultures reacted to this insight. Here in North America, the government said, okay, people aren't getting enough niacin, let's put niacin in food. So in the early 1940s, laws were passed that encouraged, but essentially made law, the addition of niacin, riboflavin, and thiamine, and also iron, first to flour, but now it's in pretty much all our carbs, you know, white rice, it's in cornmeal, it's in donuts, it's in breakfast cereal. And it worked incredibly well. Overnight, pilaria just like, poof, gone. And it, it seems so sensible that this new understanding of nutrition and the elements the body needs, we marry that with public health and we pass a law and make people get the nutrients they need. It, it seems like ironclad logic almost. And then you look over at Italy and you look at what they did and it just seems like baffling. They didn't say, let's put niacin in the flour. They said, Poor people should raise rabbits because rabbits are a cheap form of meat. They said that we should have communal bread ovens. People even encouraged the poor to drink wine, which just seems like on the surface hilarious. Like what? These people are dying and you're telling them to drink wine? But there was, I guess, a kind of a wisdom. They didn't understand it at the time, but the wine back then wouldn't have been well filtered as they are now, would have had a lot of yeast in it. The yeast actually has a ton of niacin in it. So... The advice wasn't all that bad. And funnily enough, the Italian method worked. It didn't work as quickly, but Italy literally ate its way out of, a, of an epidemic of malnutrition. What is so interesting, though, is if you fast forward the clock, the, the Americans graduated from one nutritional disaster to another. What was once the pellagra belt is now the obesity belt, also called the diabetes belt. It, it, they, it has the worst diet on the continent, the highest rates of obesity highest rates of metabolic disease, it's a disaster. It almost suggests, like it looks as though we're cursed, that when it comes to food, you know, you're either gonna starve or eat yourself to death. Look over at Northern Italy, and it is this land of incredibly beautiful food, people eating and enjoying that food and staying remarkably thin. And that's, it, it's so interesting just to look at the specific policy about using nutrients, but also just to think about the philosophy we saw food as being flawed. Food is inherently imperfect. It doesn't have what we need. And we also saw the appetite as being kind of unintelligent. Not only is food imperfect, but we don't know what we need. So we will step in and fix food. Italy saw pellagra as a disease of poverty. They said the problem isn't food. The problem is these poor people don't have access to food. They can't afford it. So we saw food as a cause and they saw food as a cure. And it is so interesting to see how our philosophies towards food and nutrition and eating reflect that very basic difference to this day. So essentially their approach was we're not eating the right foods. And our approach was let's reverse engineer the foods and make sure we get niacin and, and whatever the, the essential minerals and nutrients into these foods. 
exactly. We, we put on the nutritionist lab coat and said, that's the key to health. Whereas they, they had a kind of a trust in real food and they weren't afraid of enjoying it. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to come back to that because, because I do think we have a, a big fake food problem now. What So, but, but let's table that. I want to stay on processed foods. You say in the book, 58% of calories in the American adult diet come from ultra processed foods, 67% among children and adolescents. And many also contain ingredients that you say, put us on a path to weight gain and they fool our brain. You call them quote unquote, brain fooling foods. So what are some of these brain fooling foods and ingredients, which we should steer clear of at all costs? Because the reality is we don't have a shot. Yeah. Yes. So there, the answer is there's a lot and you can pick up some of them, but not always all of them by looking at the ingredient panel, but broadly speaking, it's anything that changes the way food tastes in, in a way that's out of context with its nutrition. So things like flavorings, which I wrote a lot about the Dorito effect, artificial sweeteners, fat replacers, which are, you know, in a lot of food and nobody knows about them. They've done a, that industry's done a very good job of, of keeping its head down. And also a lot of the things that we use to process food, things like modified starches or thickeners or emulsifiers, these aren't necessarily used to, to, you know, to, to for some perceived health advantage or to lower calorie count. They're just, it's just to make like processed food last longer or not separate or make a sauce a little thicker, you know, you don't get a puddle when you microwave it, but there's all sorts of things we do to food when we process it, that changes uh, the, it, the relationship between how it tastes and its nutritional payload. Now, I know that sounds really weird. You're like, okay, what are you saying there? And so what's so important to understand here is the importance of food and why food tastes a certain way. We think of taste as being this sort of frivolous enjoyable experience, which is totally disconnected to the important business of nutrition. Your brain doesn't look at it at all that way. The way, the reason food has taste is because your brain likes to predict. Your brain doesn't want to be surprised. And we have to metabolize food differently depending on what we're eating. We, you know, you don't use the same, you know, metabolic processes to, to metabolize, to digest protein as you might for fat, as you might for carbohydrates. So this is why and as we taste food, the brain's saying, okay, this is what's coming in. But then after we eat, the brain does another analysis and it says, did I get what I thought I was going to get? This is called post-ingestive learning. And this is how we learn to like food in the first place. The reason, you know, we do, I don't feel that we're programmed to get fat and that we come out of the womb kind of on a lifelong mission to gain weight, but the brain does like calories. That's the basic unit of energy. We need them. For all of human existence, the taste indicators of calories, which is to say starchiness, fattiness, sweetness, they were always in sync with the calories that were getting delivered. So if a fruit tasted sweeter, it had more calories. If a piece of meat tasted richer and fattier, it had more calories. Well, for decades now, we have been engineering, let's call them technological additives that are designed to mimic these sensory experiences to make food taste like it has more calories than it actually has. Now, this is all predicated on this idea going way back that our appetite is stupid, that we have this sort of stone age, hungry, ogre of an appetite, and we got to fool it. But this all changes if it turns out your brain is smart and it does this second level of analysis because it goes, okay, I thought I was getting calories that tasted sweet or it tasted rich and creamy and I didn't get the calories. 
And that's where things become very interesting because we then ask, well, what does a brain do when that happens? And this is very well studied in psychology. It's called reward prediction error, or it's also another word for it is just uncertainty. And the way the brain responds to uncertainty or reward prediction error is by amplifying motivation. It makes us want more. Now that might sound weird and you're like, what, what does that mean? Why would that be? But there's an easy way to think about it. If I told you that the, the gas gauge in your car was broken, you don't know, it, it might say it's full, it might say half full. You really don't know how much gas is in there. What would you do? Look at the, you look at the gauge. You, and, but you don't know, yeah. it might be wrong. Yeah. So, yeah, sure. You open it up, you open up the hood and you go in and try to peek around and stick the thing in. Because you're yeah. like, I, I don't want to run out of gas, right? Yeah. If I run out of gas, I'm, I mean, that's a disaster. You got to call a tow truck. Well, that's how your brain feels about calories. It doesn't, if it went through life and when it thought it was getting calories, it didn't get them, it, it could starve or it, it could lose. And we are programmed by evolution to avoid a loss. So if these sensory cues for nutrition become uncertain, the brain responds by saying, I better get more calories because I just can't be sure. I don't want to get ripped off. And there's so many ways we've changed food to constantly deliver a message that is out of sync with the actual nutrition, that this is why I think we're seeing this desire to eat. And, and that is literally what we see. When we look at the brain scans of people with obesity, it's not that they enjoy food more. There's, there's a brain circuit for pleasure impact. This, these are opioid neurotransmitters. That's not what we see with people with obesity. If anything, the enjoyment of food is actually blunted. What we see is this spike in dopamine craving. When they smell the pizza, when they see the milkshake, they are seized by a craving and they are plagued by cravings for food that are never satisfied by actual pleasure. So, so this is the, the true nature of what we're dealing with. And what an awful state of affairs to go through life craving food that never truly satisfies you. There's so much to unpack there. And just to stay on dopamine, you talk about in the book, dopamine wanting and how it actually can predict weight gain before, like you can predict weight gain by yes. looking at this. Yes, exactly. So, so there's these two brain circuits and yeah, one of them is called wanting and that's mediated by the neurotransmitter dopamine, which many people have heard of. It's involved in a lot of drugs. It used to be thought that dopamine was the pleasure chemical, you know, outright. But then our understanding changed and we realized now that dopamine is more about motivation. And this really, this really actually, what it really did was it radically transformed our understanding of drug abuse because it used to be thought that, you know, th there was sort of this war that some people said people use drugs because of the euphoria, like they want to get high. And then, and that's why, you know, addicts are addicts, but the addicts are like, no, no, it, it started that way. But the, you know, the enjoyment is long gone. And then there was this other school that said, no, the reason addicts use is because they want to avoid the pain of withdrawal. But then addicts would be like, no, that's not true because I was clean for 10 years. Withdrawal was long gone. And then I, you know, I passed by a bar I used to visit, or I got a call from, you know, someone I used to use with, and then this, they can relapse. And what became the signature of addiction was craving. And we found that is, is similar with overeating, with obesity, binge eating, for example, that this is characterized by people eating when they don't necessarily even feel hunger, but there's something that compels them to eat. So what we saw is that overeating is, is much like, it's different, but similar to, to drug abuse in that it's caused by craving, it's caused by wanting. And this is actually a predictor because a scientist, they would do things like they would look at, they would look at adolescents, for example, that are at risk, that they may have obesity in their family. 
and they see that they respond to food cues well in advance of actually becoming obese, they see that wanting spike happening. There was a great uh, study done, I think it was at Dartmouth, where they looked at co-eds and they showed them things like, they would show them a picture of pancakes with maple syrup. They would show them also another picture of like a steamy sexual embrace. And they found that, that the students, the subjects that reacted more strongly to the picture of the pancakes with that spike of wanting went on to gain more weight. It predicted it. Now, interestingly, the ones that responded to that steamy sexual embrace went on to have more sex. So, which is just to say that these, this activity in the desire part of the brain is predictive of behavior. It tells us a lot about, about ourselves. Just to stay on this, there was a paragraph in the book I found to be profound. So I'm going to read it for everyone. You say, as with addictive drugs, the food problem isn't fueled by an overindulgence in pleasure. It is fueled by the desire to obtain that pleasure. The obese are not selfish pleasure, pleasure seekers as everyone has long presumed. They are instead caught in a vortex of craving. They suffer from a critical dysfunction between two brain circuits. Life with obesity is kind of a cruel prison. To eat is to experience raging bursts of desire followed by an underwhelming dribble of pleasure. It is a paradigm-shifting insight. W what can we do to help those that are suffering from obesity? It, it, it's a great question. I think the most important thing is we have to get off the path that we're on. So, so much of we've done, you know, I can say some practical things like avoid artificial sweeteners, avoid fat replacers, don't consume things that have the word diet or light. I'm not a fan of fake foods. I don't like, you know, sort of fake dairy stuff. I don't like the, the plant-based meats just because their they're, they're very DNA is about deception. And I think that's so much of the problem. But I think on an even deeper level, we have to stop pretending to be nutritionists. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is none of us really have a clue about calories, protein, insulin, fat. The people, the physiologists who study this for a living are confused by it and can't develop models that are predictive. So what makes us think that we can sort of traipse through the grocery aisle or look at a menu and have any clue about our actual protein consumption or caloric consumption? I think we have to approach eating the way Italians do and look at eating as an opportunity to experience pleasure from real food, from the bounty of the land and, and of the sea. But I think also this isn't just sort of a nice idea that, you know, delicious real food can deliver us from our problems. There actually is some research behind this. I spent some time in Germany at a clinic with a woman named Anya Hilbert. She, her clinic handles some of Germany's most challenging cases of disordered eating. She has a lot of clients of binge eating disorder. And I mean, it, it's amazing when she talks about how difficult their lives are. You know, something like taking the stairs versus the elevator, it's not even a choice for them. It's inconceivable that they might take the stairs two or three flights up. She has to help them develop a route home from the train station in which they don't pass by a, let's say a sweet shop or a bakery. It is really an all consuming problem. And she has developed, uh, essentially hedonic, what they call hedonic therapy. These are therapies based on our understanding of pleasure. And she brought me through some of it and she made me into, she, she gave me an intimate experience of these two different brain circuits. And the first one is this dopamine wanting brain circuit. And I'll, it was just such an interesting experience. What she did is she gave me a bag of chips. It was, I think, cheese and onion flavored. And she said, open them. And, and sort of air was released. I inhaled the aroma. 
And she said, take two chips. She said, you can nibble them, but you can't eat them. So I just took this little nibble and I stiffed them. She said, you can even rub them together. And I thought, that's silly. I mean, rubbing chips together, who would do that? I did that and it was crazy. Like this absolute, I was absolutely seized. I wanted to eat these chips so badly that it hurt. And she said, now throw those out and do it again. And then I had these two even newer, fresher, you know, chips. And it was so interesting. And I'm not someone who struggles with this. I'm over six feet. I weigh 170 pounds. And yet I, I so understood the power that certain foods have over us. And you start to think about potato chips. And you think, you know, these are foods that when you start to eat them, you just sort of mindlessly keep eating them. No one would ever say that this is a profoundly good eating experience. No one, no one would say, you know, boy, there was that bag of chips I had in 1999 in Portugal, but I'll just never forget that bag of chips. That's, these foods never truly pleasure us. Well, then we explored the other brain circuit, the liking brain circuit. And she gave me a fine dark chocolate covering a very crunchy biscuit center. And she said, just put this in your mouth, close your eyes and let the heat of your body melt this. And this chocolate took me on a journey. I mean, it was, it, it, it just, I was, it, it was like my, you know, my tour guide almost. And what was so interesting was, you know, I mean, people don't think of chocolate as a health food, but really a little chocolate doesn't contain that many calories. And it gave me so much pleasure. But what is so interesting is that Anya Hilbert will use this with her patients that have binge eating disorder when they are seized with these cravings, this desire to, to literally eat to the point of feeling physically ill, she'll say, just put a very fine chocolate in your mouth and just let it melt. And what's so interesting is that these foods can deliver so much pleasure, it can actually extinguish this raging bonfire of desire. So you mentioned binging and, and you touched on uncertainty and you have a, a, a real world example in the book that I, I chuckled when I read it, Halo Top. Yes. So, so walk us through Halo Top and why that's problematic for those who are looking to keep off weight or for anyone. It doesn't matter who you are. Well, Halo Top is seen as this miracle ice cream because it apparently really does taste like ice cream. And, you know, every single ingredient, it seems, has been substituted by something that delivers the same sensation, but at fewer calories. So you have various kinds of gums and artificial sweeteners and fat replacers. And people rave about it. They say this tasted like real ice cream, but I, you know, only whatever it is, 80 or 90 calories, whatever it actually is. And this so perfectly encapsulates this idea that our brain is stupid. The appetite is dumb and must be fooled. And we have the know-how and the smarts to do it. I don't think there's any evidence that this is working. If you subscribe to the model that the brain is smart and that it is on a fundamental level, a prediction engine, this is not a good strategy. This is going to backfire. And it's, you know, to me, I, when I open refrigerators and see all these kinds of foods, it's so often with people who have kind of a tortured relationship with food that it's, it's, it's seeing food as a, like a slow acting poison. That's something constantly tempting us and something we can never get control of. And I, I just don't think it's a healthy way to eat. And I think the example of Italy is, is screaming at us and telling us we're getting it wrong. So, you know. If we're looking, you know, the biggest stage for weight loss is the biggest loser. And yep. you mentioned a study conducted by Kevin Hall on biggest loser contestants where he tracked their weight loss. Cause you know, we want to help people, we want people to lose their weight, biggest loser, huge stage. Let's track these people. And six years later, he found that 90 of the 126 pounds that contestants lost. So they didn't lose, they didn't gain back all the weight, but 90 out of 126, they gained 
the majority of it back. And, and there were some that did lose the weight and kept it off. So my question to you is what were the characteristics of people who lost the weight and kept it off? Cause I think we, we all want to, you know, those who are suffering from obesity, those who want to lose weight, they want to lose the weight. They want to keep it off. They don't want to be in a yo-yo. You, you mentioned the tortured relationship people have with food and obesity and, and, and weight and it goes on and off. And how do we lose weight and keep it off? What can we learn from the biggest loser study? Uh, you see, I know what would be great to say is that, you know, the people who kept the weight off exercise and ate less and the people who gained, you know, went back to their old indulgent ways. But what we see there is that even people who weighed more than they started, than the day they walked into that competition, some people gained back even more they were still exercising. They were still dieting. So they were experiencing something called, it was like a, a, a persistent metabolic adaptation, which is to say their metabolism seemed permanently altered by this. So it really is difficult to say, what is the magic formula? There's the National Weight Loss Registry, which looks at people who've lost, I think it's 30 pounds or more and kept it off. And it is, I mean, it's a real battle. A lot of these people get divorced. They often move some, and many of them actually become dietitians or, or work in, in, in this area. It's almost like they become evangelists. They weigh themselves often. They avoid desserts. It, it, it really can be an all consuming effort. So, so the idea that you can make some sort of simple change, like I'm not going to eat carbs or I'll, I'll avoid this, or it's it, to do it effectively. It has to be a lifelong change. I agree. It's got to be a lifestyle. That's why diets don't work. If you do a hardcore diet, um, that is eliminates a large number of food groups that's very hard to do and sustain over the course of time so well and it, it becomes like this you know there can be a certain pleasure in a short term of sort of beating yourself up like i'm gonna you know persevere and make it through this like run the gauntlet you can maybe do that for a month two months but you can't spend your whole life doing that and i think one of the biggest problems is so, so much of this dieting is predicated on this idea that we must limit pleasure. So some of the people that succeed at it can drain themselves, their life of the pleasure that food gives them. I think for most people that is not sustainable. Well, also I want to come back to this idea of uncertainty, because I, I think it's, it, it's interesting and it's important. And, and you draw similarities in the book between uncertainty with money and food. So can you yes. talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so it's to, to, to really get a, an idea of how uncertainty animates us, it, it's really helpful to look at gambling um, because what a gamble is basically is to be, you know, to be confronted with the prospect of uncertainty. You don't know what the outcome is. You might win, you might lose. And to think about how this revs us up, just think about the idea of a vacation in Las Vegas. Do we go there because we think we're going to make money? Most people know you're probably going to lose. Most people know that the odds are stacked against you, but there's something exciting about it. And even if it were about making money, that that's not, that's not how our attitude is about making money. You know, if you're going to like work double time or work the Christmas Eve shift and get paid time and a half or, or triple time, you don't go out and celebrate that with a steak dinner to kick it off. And yet you do that in Las Vegas. There's something about the idea of a gamble that just draws us in. What's so interesting about gambling is even rich people do it for some that won't budge their level of personal wealth. They might bet 10 or 20 bucks on a football game because it's fun. There's something about uncertainty that just pulls us in. This is why we watch sports and we like the odds to be matched. The more uncertain and uncertainty peaks when the odds are 50, 50 heads or tails, you don't know what it's going to happen. That's why we want to watch 
you know, you'd never watch LeBron James play one-on-one with me. I mean, it'd be funny for about half a minute and it's just incredibly boring, right? You want to see him play. I mean, it wouldn't be amazing if he could play with the greats of history with, you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or something. That's when we really want to see what really pulls us in is uncertainty. Another way to think about it is buttons, particularly elevator buttons. So it's interesting when you walk up to an elevator, even if someone's already pressed the call button, it's like, we don't know what's going on upstairs. Somebody could be loading luggage. Some kid is hoping the door open sign. The elevator's not coming. So you get pissed off and you start pressing that button over and over again. It's the same at an intersection, right? When they have that walk button and you're like, is this thing even connected? You just start jabbing and over and over again. Now think about a light switch. When you walk into a room, do you flick the light switch on 20 times? No, you just gently flick it once because that light switch is certain. It delivers a result dependably. So there's no reason to have this kind of elevated motivation towards it. But if that light didn't work or it worked some of the time, you start flicking it up and down because you're motivated and you want more. And so, and talk about the food, same thing. That's what we've done with food. So if we think about these cues, if you think about sweetness, it was always dependable. It might've been hard for our ancestors. It might've been hard to get that sweet fruit. You might, there might be competition. You might have to beat out a rival. Maybe there's like a large cat that wants to eat you. That's waiting at the bottom of that tree. But when you got that fruit, the sweetness that it contained did not lie to you. If it was a sweet fig, that was a sugary fig that had energy. Now think about all these processed foods that they, that we eat and the many ways they've been engineered that they fool our brains or they seek to fool our brains, but our our brains aren't that dumb. That's the problem that characterizes, you know, we say like, what is the difference between ultra processed food and real food? It's not just processing. There's not some magic that happens when you process something. It's that the food no longer speaks properly to our brains, such that it has disrupted our relationship that our brains have with the food that we eat. Safe to say you you are better off having a, you know, full fat, full sugar, delicious chocolate chip cookie rather than a highly processed fake sweetener, fake fat chocolate chip cookie. If you're going to. And you know, the, the most interesting thing is even, you know, even I have been tainted by this food fear that we have. I grew up in the eighties. You know, still wince a little bit if they thought of eggs, you know, there was, it was just hammered into us how unhealthy eggs were because the cholesterol and fat, we've all changed our mind about that, but it lingers with you. It really, I just marvel when I watch European chefs cook and I see how much butter they do and you're like, oh my God, like, did you just do that? And yet it, it is so obvious when you watch them eat and you watch them conduct their lives that their relationship with food is much healthier than ours is. You know, I, I can't help but think of, you know, you talked about Atkins in the book and, you know, I, I think of the keto craze and you, know, you, you have a diet. I'll use those two as, two as examples, you know, high fat diet, low carb diet, you're eating a lot of protein and you can do it in a way that's plant-based for those who are, you know, plant-based and listening and it's effective. And then with these two diets in particular, it's effective. A lot of people are catching on and then all of a sudden you see a zillion products on the shelf. You know, there's keto cookies, there's Atkins bar, you know, and once that happens, at least in my, what we're, what we're saying, the diet becomes less effective. If you're doing Atkins, you're doing keto or one of these diets that actually can help people with losing a decent amount of weight pretty quickly. And then you enter all the processed food. That's when it becomes problematic. Yeah. And and the other thing that's, you know, here's the thing that hasn't come with all diets is that 
all diets pretty much do work and they work for about six to eight months and then they stop working. And I know people who will, you know, go on kind of a, a high fat, you know, high protein, low carb diet once a year. And it's because they works for six months, it works. And then you're like, what went wrong? The food cravings start to come back. You're tired. You swear that the scale is lying. But what you've run into is your brain and your brain. This is what nobody talks about. Your brain controls body weight. The same way it controls your body temperature, the same way it controls your heart rate. Now, if this were a widely known fact, we wouldn't have a diet industry because everybody would realize, oh, it's your brain. Okay, so th this little quick little, you know, trick isn't going to work. So it's really, but you got to understand how the brain works if you want to have any hope at cracking this riddle. So how do we control the brain? So you, you speak to it on its own level and you realize that it doesn't like being fooled. That it, it doesn't, it wants to get what it wants. It likes to be able to predict. It's not hell bent on being fat. You, you know, we tell ourselves that, and I think this is part of the problem, that we think that we're doomed to weight gain. There's this idea of the thrifty gene that, that our ancestors, that because we were constantly faced with the threat of famine, that, you know, if you could pack on a few extra pounds, you might just outlast this famine. I think there's so many reasons to think that's not true. There's so many reasons from an evolutionary point of view where it does not make sense to carry extra weight. But when you carry extra weight, you need more calories just to fuel that body. And calories were expensive back then. They, you know, they couldn't go to the supermarket. They had to get it from trees or kill animals. When it's just more dangerous to, to live when you have extra weight in an evolutionary past, you can't sprint as fast. So you're an easier prey. You're a more delectable prey. And if you're chasing something, it's harder to catch it because you're slower. You're more likely to injure yourself if you're trying to accelerate or decelerate or turn. But here's the most interesting thing. A very important trade-off took place during evolution, which is to say our brains got bigger and our guts got smaller. This is called the expensive tissue hypothesis. So, so when our ancestors were like chimpanzees, brain was much smaller. Brains are energy hogs. They really like to consume calories. Well, we had a small brain and we ate a fibrous plant diet to fuel that brain. As our brain got bigger, we needed a more calorie-dense diet to fuel that brain. So we started eating nuts. We started eating fatty meat. We started eating sweet fruit. And that is largely one of the miracles that helped pave the way to humanity was this high calorie diet. Now it's because of that, that people say, huh, see, like we're addicted to calories. But I say no, because here's the important thing. What let us be human was the ability to have these, these meals that had a lot of calories, but then we could go do other things. So, if, so you look at chimpanzees, they spend about 80, 85% of the day just getting food or eating it. Humans spend far less time gathering food, and that gives us the luxury of time. That means we can build structures, we can craft weapons, we can make garments out of fur, we can develop fashion, we can trade, we can tell myths and stories. So what made us human was actually this ability to stop eating and say, I've had enough, I'm going to go and do something else. So this idea that once we start to eat, you know, we just can't stop, that doesn't make sense because what made us human was the ability to eat and then stop eating. And all, you know, we developed technologies in the past, uh, you know, Native, Native Americans would uh, make pemmican from buffalo fat and from berries and from the dried meat. They didn't just sit there and gorge on it. They said, I'm going to save this for later. That was an integral part of what made us human. So this difficulty that we have not eating is a very recent phenomenon. So not eating and eating, I'll segue to compressed eating windows, intermittent eating or intermittent fasting it works for a lot of people. There, there's not a lot of science there yet, but I know a lot of people are researching. 
effect on weight loss. What's your take on intermittent fasting or compressed eating windows? My take is if anything's really work for you, keep doing it. I'm not going to say don't do it because I have some theory that says it's not going to work. If, if something works for you, do it. But I would also say, don't just say, is it working for me now? Go get a calendar out and put an X, you know, six months, eight months down the road and say, is it still working for me? But ultimately, um, you know, we have this idea that there's some kind of a hack out there that we can do this one trick and that's going to make everything right again. I don't think it's that, I don't think it's going to work that way. I think the brain is too smart and it's too complex. I think we, we have to restore the relationship the brain has with food and with eating real food. This is the most important point. We evolved to eat food. Food gives us pleasure. When we put it in our mouth, the, the, you know, it, it actually causes more brain activity than any other activity is the act of tasting and enjoying food. It's like that for a reason. If you think of the genome as the instruction manual to make you, the chapter on your food sensing equipment, your nose and mouth is the thickest chapter in the book. It's really important. So this whole idea that we can kind of game things with our, our really mediocre comprehension of nutrition, it, it doesn't work. It hasn't been working for years. This is, it's just, it's failed. We evolved to eat real food. We should do as the Italians do and look upon every meal as an opportunity to enjoy real food. And that, you know, it seems like it's steeped in a kind of, you know, peasant simplicity, but it works. So, you know, we are pleasure seekers and we all have cravings. And so when we do have that craving, what do you recommend in the short term, the long term? It's, you know, it's midday, it's three o'clock. You know, having a little bit of craving, whether I go for, you know, black coffee or a donut, yeah. what do you recommend when that craving happens? Cause they do happen. I would recommend, you know, like I said, avoid the stuff that's just really trying to fool your brain. But I would also say if you're going to play the calorie counting game and it's kind of impossible not to, because we've been so conditioned, don't just count the calories. Talk about the relationship of the pleasure to those calories. I can think of a fast food meal on the rare occasions, you know, if I'm stuck in an airport and I have to eat a meal like that, it amazes me how quickly that goes down. And like, I'm still hungry afterward. It wasn't good. It's like, I could probably eat another. And you're looking at like 1100 calories or something. And then I think of a meal I might make at home and I might cook a steak. I love steak. I love grass fed beef. I might make um, a Caesar salad from scratch. I might roast some potatoes. I might have a glass or two or, or more of red wine. You know, the calorie count on that meal started to get up there, but that's a profoundly different eating experience. For one thing, I'm eating it with my wife and, and there's something about the relationship that, that the relationship amplifies the meal because it's always nice to eat food with someone else. You would never want to have a gourmet meal by yourself. And then the food also fuels the relationship. But also I think the next day I find when I have those big indulgent feast nights, I'm not particularly hungry the next day. I'm certainly not hungry half an hour afterwards the way I am with fast food. So I think we need to be focused more on the experience of eating. We've been trying to negate it, trying to pretend it doesn't exist, that it's this, you know, this indulgence that must be controlled or, or you know, repressed. I think we should indulge it and celebrate. Is that one of the differences we should note with regards to Italy and the U.S.? You've got a culture in Italy where there, you know, there's family around the table, they're enjoying food, multi-generational in some instances. It, it, it's an evening, whereas unfortunately, many in the U.S., you know, we're busy, we're working, we're commuting, and it's, and it's grab and go, and it goes in the microwave or it's takeout. And fundamentally, it's a different experience. It, it really is. There's, you know, one of the most interesting stats I happened upon is if you look at Italy and France, 
we consume more calories uh, on average than they do, significantly more. But here's what's really interesting. We somehow consume all those calories in less than half the time, wow. which is like, how do you even do that? It's like if I watched twice as many movies as you in half the time, you're like, that's not possible. Like, how do you do that? It's because we're, it's like we're stuffing our faces or something. And we say we don't have the time, but this is where you have to ask the question of like, what's the point of being a wealthy society if you don't have the time to enjoy one of the great joys of living, which is eating? There's so much great research in the book. I'm curious, was there one piece of data or a study that was that when you came across your jaw just dropped? Oh, you know, there was a lot. There was actually, this is a story that I found sort of touching and it stayed with me. There's a story of a little boy. This is about a hundred years old. His name was Tom. And when he was very young, I don't know how this happened, but he had clam chowder that was so hot, it sealed his throat shut and he was unable to eat. He, he, he was unable to swallow food. So doctors saved his life by creating an opening in his stomach. It's called a fistula. And he would feed himself literally just by loading food into his stomach the way you, you know, you'd load food in the back of a truck. Um, they created this and they started to feed him this way and he wasn't doing well. He wasn't doing well at all. And one day the sick little boy said, let me taste it first. And so they let him taste the food and then they put it in his stomach. And that's how he went on to feed himself for the rest of his life. He made this miraculous turnaround. It shows you the importance of eating. It's so interesting to me because when we imagine the future, like it's always people are wearing silver unitards and food is in the form of pills because it's so baked into us that this idea that actually eating is like so primitive and stupid. And it, it's so important. The act of eating food, of tasting it and enjoying it, it's so incredibly important. It's what guides the metabolic process. And this little boy, he grew up, he lived many decades. He would say if, if he would eat food and he wouldn't taste it first, it's like it went right through him. It's like the meal never happened. Wow. So in closing, leave us with some hope. How can we fix this? <laughs> I take a trip to Italy and you will <laughs> eat better food than you ever have. And you will marvel at how thin everybody is. And I think you know, move to Italy, right? It's actually interesting. I talked to a number of people who, who actually did move to Europe for spells of time and they wouldn't even weigh themselves. They were so sure that they were just, you know, e e having this just incredible eating experience. They were sure that they gained incredible amounts of weight and they all lost weight. It's remarkable. But I, I think there's hope there and that it tells us that it actually is possible to have a, a good relationship with food. And I think this isn't going to undo itself overnight. If it takes a while, to screw up your brain and to mess things up. It's, it's not going to repair itself overnight. But I think if we do eat real food and enjoy it, I think there is hope for us. I think that's the path forward. Amen. Well, I love the book, The End of Craving, Recovering the Lost Wisdom of Eating Well. Thank you, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. Great conversation. <laughs>